Welcome back, goblins. I have special guests to them. Let's try this again. <laughs> no, keep it in, please. <laughs> okay, let's keep this in. This is my style, man. I have with me tonight special guest, Vuk. Hello, Actually, guys. No, you know what? I have, a, I have a whole thing set up for this. Let me start this over. I'll, I'll figure out how this goes. You're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs, your source for the paranormal, the mysterious, and the strange. You may know him from Darwin's Deviations. You may know him from Tracing Owls. Some of you know him as a sentient potato. My good <laughs> friend and fellow weirdo, Vuk. Why, hello, guys. Um, I don't know if your audience is aware of me, or maybe they will be with the episode we're going to see on Monday as of the date of this recording. <laughs> well, they should all know you from the uh, the interviews that I did on your show. Oh, yeah. So, so as Jason uh, said, for those who do not know me, my name is Vuk. I do a podcast called Tracing Owls. I used to do a podcast named Darwin's Deviations. And on Tracing Owls, I had Jason on two times. The first time we talked about West Virginian cryptids through the lens of the archetypes of the major arcana. And the second time we talked about poop. <laughs> yes, yes. Fossilized, polished, shiny poop. Oh, and divination via poop as well. <laughs> My biggest disappointment at this stage is that your podcast is on indefinite hiatus, which means I will never catch up to Red Pill Junkie. Oh, man. So <laughs> the thing is, uh, as I was telling you before we started recording, like the last episode I recorded for my podcast, not the last episode I put out because I had a giant backlog. So the last time I recorded was on the 1st of April with you and Carly, that poop episode. <laughs> and funnily enough, um, April 1st is the date I put out the last, what became the last episode of Darwin's Deviations two or three years ago, and it killed my old podcast. So now I can say that you killed my new podcast as well. <laughs> you know, I'm okay with that. I will accept it. It's very weird now, like taking a hiatus after a, a few months um, and sitting down and recording with the same guy who I did my last episode with. <laughs> Wait, so does this mean you're going to kill my podcast in return? I don't know, man. You did tell me that you're having thunderstorms now there. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find out. You also have the uh, distinction of being the person who is responsible for my April Fool's episode on my show. So far, the first and only April Fool's episode. <laughs> I, I gave you that idea. I, I can't remember what we did. I, I told you like, hey, there's a cool idea. Let's do erotic book club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I took it one step further and found out that, wait, yes, there is a paranormal erotic author out there. Mm -hmm. And we got Chuck Tingle. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah, I was actually for my uh, podcast. And for those who do not know, like Tracing Owls is a 14 paranormal podcast. But I like to take a more uh, psychosocial approach, a uh, cultural sociological approach to the paranormal. So I don't talk about whether things are real or not. I talk about what they mean to us and how we use them. Uh, a common motif I've been playing around with on my shows is linguistics. I I'm very interested in that topic. 
uh, how we talk about the paranormal, how we use the paranormal in discourse um, and, and in media as well. So I was planning once to have an uh, erotic author on the show. I was looking eagerly to find somebody who does cryptid uh, smut. And as you may expect, nobody wants to be on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was in the same boat. Believe it or not, I had an erotic, cryptid author all lined up and ready to go, and I was going to interview her about basically what draws people to that specific genre. Mm -hmm. Totally flaked on me. But you see, when I think about it now, and this is something I've been telling you before we started recording, like the whole motif of play with the paranormal... Um, I told you, like, these events happen because we are meant to play with them. Uh, we are not meant to, as I said, be the middle-aged guys who collect retro toys and keep them uh, locked under, you know, a, a glass case or something. So they're not damaged, so they can be in perfect mint condition. Something we see with the researchers a lot, you know, they want to uh, strictly... Uh, define the the physicality and materialism of what happened and keep that narrative but not allow uh, any as i'd say play uh, with these events um, and also kind of omit anything that's high strangeness or weird from the cases anything that could be considered uh, outside of the scope of you know scientific materialism uh, where was i getting at <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I totally lost track there. <laughs> yeah, but like I can see a commonality there between uh, why uh, cryptids would be so prevalent in erotica. Erotica itself and pornography are kind of play. I mean, sexuality itself is uh, based in play and is a very paranormal thing as well. So I don't find it weird that the paranormal seeps into that realm as well. Now that we're talking about this totally unplanned. So I did a little mini rant episode on my show called Horning the Paranormal, uh -oh. where I drew parallels between how we treat the paranormal and gathering evidence of the paranormal with kind of pornographying it. We get all these gadgets and go to haunted locations so we can uh, put a camera be between us and the other. And instead of experiencing the other firsthand... We want to, you know, gather evidence of it so we can show it to our colleagues, so we can mm. um, intrigue them. You know, it's kind of like a pornography. And we become obsessed with this pornography, uh, reducing the actual experience, which we are supposed to experience with all our senses, you know, the paranormal. Um, we want to reduce it to a 2D image. That makes a lot of sense, especially in terms of, say, like ghost hunting with the, the popularity of all the TV shows that are out there and really even Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. And I feel like both of those have their own purpose. I'm not sure what the purpose of a ghost is at this stage, but like Bigfoot seems to be like a shamanic experience. And we are watching that happen on TV. And you lose so much of the context of that by not physically being there. Have you ever heard of uh, from magic practitioners? Because I'm not from that realm, but I have heard it. Uh, Barbara Fisher told me this. Like uh, when people do these magic rituals, it is obviously a way different and more rich experience 
in real life, but if you take a camera and, you know, record what they're doing and look at it later, you know, these people are going to look like a bunch of idiots doing silly things because the camera cannot capture whatever is being experienced there. Yeah, I have heard that. I specifically heard it from her. And it seems like because so much of what happens in, say, magic, for example, it's internal. Mm -hmm. And it is intangible. And we are dealing with forces that are not, not visible and not necessarily of this plane of existence, if you want to phrase it that way. So no, it's not going to be captured on camera. But but also it's an experiential thing, and it's a very co-creational type of thing. So, okay, let's say this. I like to use this analogy a lot of the, the time. Uh, when we talk about UFO experiences, we are not talking about UFOs or whether the UFO is real or not, or whether it's an alien or a spaceship or ultra-terrestrial or whatever. We're talking about a UFO experience, and I do think that if somebody sees a flock of geese and mistakes it for a UFO and has an experience that changes their life and sends them down a rabbit hole, that is a genuine UFO experience, regardless if it's a genuine UFO or not. Absolutely. And that's really going in the same direction that you and I have been discussing about all of this, really is that it's not necessarily what actually happened, like, in a concrete sense. It's how it changed everybody that was involved, how it changed the experiencer. Yes. Uh, I was now listening to your episode on uh, the Silent Invasion uh, book, and you did mention that there were some of the UFOs in in this flap in 73 in Pennsylvania that were debunked as, you know, just generic airplanes around the area that could be corroborated as flying at that time. And such cases have been like omitted from the book because of this. I see that as kind of a fault in the way we research the Fortean. We should be researching, even though we know somebody saw an airplane and thinks it's a UFO, we should still be researching the effect on the person. And if we want to research the reality of, you know, real UFOs that we can't debunk and their effect on another person, shouldn't we also compare uh, the effects we see on people who are seeing something that we can prove is a mundane thing? If we want to, you know, go through the weeds and see what is actually paranormal or not. So it would be almost like a double blind study where yeah. there is a like a sugar pill introduced into a a drug study. Mm-hmm. But but you know I I see the paranormal as a giant cultural social placebo. Hmm. I do see it like that. I necessarily don't believe in the reality of an elusive other or entities out there. You know that I am strictly of the psychosocial hypothesis, and I think these are maybe manifestations or projections from the within. So in that case, it would all be a form of placebo. But saying that something is just a placebo is kind of reductionist, materialist. Like There is no such thing as just something, because everything, if it has some kind of... uh, long-lasting effect on a person is mm-hmm. 
as valuable as something that we perceive as, you know, real or genuine. Right. So like if someone has a placebo and they have a genuine effect, we have to ask why. Yes, and also if you if you want to research like the reality of the paranormal, if you want to weed out what is a real paranormal event, shouldn't you also be aware of how a placebo uh, affects a person? What uh, internal psychological and also cultural and social mechanisms come into play when there's a placebo introduced? So you can rule them out from a real paranormal experience. I mean, do we really need to rule it out at all? According to this premise, like all of this is having an actual effect on the individual. Mm -hmm. So we should be studying that and not necessarily throwing any of it out. We should record it and it doesn't have to be gone into in any depth, but we should still be looking at it. Yes. I mean, all we have are the paranormal experiences as a reaction or an effect of whatever may have happened that we do not fathom and do not have evidence of. So we should start from the experience, but the experience is intricately tied with the experiencer and also intricately tied with whoever is interviewing the experiencer and co-creating a narrative with them. And then later on, who is writing a book and then co-creating a narrative with the experiencer and the interviewer and so on and so on. It's, I see the whole phenomenon as kind of living mythology. I see it as living mythology, living symbology, and as something that is self-perpetuating its own mythologization. Absolutely. Think of this. uh, Think of a hermit crab that wants to hide away into its shell. But the shell is something that we provide it. We tack onto it all of these masks from the within. We attribute uh, stuff to it. We do a lot of conjecture. We form storytelling and myths uh, around this crab, which we'll never see. We will never see what it truly is. But the more we tack these masks onto it, the more we create this crust around it, which allows it to uh, interact with us indirectly through the middleman of, of that whole crust of mythology that we have formed around it. You really just created a biological example of the allegory of the cave. Yes, yes. Except it's a hermit crab, so it's more personified at this point. Is this the allegory of Plato's cave? Yes. Mm-hmm. I was actually listening today to Steve Berg's new uh, podcast, High Strangeness, uh, the episode mm-hmm. with Greg Bishop. I love Greg Bishop because him and I have very, very similar views on the paranormal and how it should be viewed. And though I am, you know, from the scientific hard science background of biology, and I used to work as a biology teacher, I came into this from, you know, biology, and he came, he has a background in art and art history, I still find it fascinating that uh, a materialist such as myself and then an artist such as him can come to the same conclusions independently. Um, I I find this also fascinating. Like I have not read a lot of Kiel or Jacques Vallée very intently because I don't want to muddy up my own learning process, my own journey. So I come to a lot of conclusions and theories on my own and then just later on find out, oh, these people have been talking about that for 50 years. 
Sort of like how you came to the conclusion about the Gaia hypothesis, only yes. to find out that that is an actual theory at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was a very, uh, very interesting, depressive journey. <laughs> I don't know if you want me like to go into the Gaia hypothesis because I'm the Ga Gaia guy now and pigeonholed into that role all the time. I will leave that entirely up to you. That is something I've wanted to discuss with you in general. We can do it on air, off air. Totally oh, up to you. We can discuss it because I think you will maybe ask me some questions that are not, you know, generic. Uh, you're you're not a newbie to the concept. But for the listeners, um, yes, I am known in the in this. I don't know the paranormal podcasting community as the Gaia guy now. Not related to the Gaia streaming service uh, on which you may have heard Jason's name being mentioned. <laughs> yeah, so that's a that's a weird situation there. Um, apparently my episode on Passport to Magonia has been mentioned several times on a few episodes of someone's television show. No one can give me any details. I have no mm. idea what show it is, who it was that mentioned it. I just know that they said I was specifically mentioned on Gaia TV. That's all and, I know. And, and how screwed up is that? Like, you know, the type of stuff they put on Gaia TV and there is a, even racist stuff and, you know, questionable things, conspiracy theories, and then people inventing blue avians and trying to put a copyright on that. So oh, man. You, you don't even know who mentioned or and who uh, praised your show <laughs> and whether that's something you want or not. You know, until just now, I hadn't even thought of that. So thanks for that, Vuk. <laughs> oh, I am known also, not, not just as the Gaia guy, but also as the guy who, who shatters people's minds <laughs> with the Gaia hypothesis often. So for the listeners, uh, the Gaia hypothesis is the idea, or should I say scientific theory now, because it is known as Earth System Science. But the mm -hmm. idea that the whole planet is a living organism and that we are its components and not just us, but all life on Earth, um, kind of look at it the way as uh, all the cells in your body are uh, constructing you and keeping your own being in homeostasis. So are you and all living things on this planet, the cells of something much greater, which is a super organism. And this coincides with the idea Jacques Vallée always proposes of a control system, which I think, because of its naming, is uh, kind of misinterpreted, especially by people who go into the paranormal uh, seeking, you know, a horror, thrill, or scary stories, or even conspiracies. It's not like, ah, oh, they want to control our minds with a system. Yeah, they, they want something like Men in Black, something tangible that you can see and interact with. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, the Gaia hypothesis, uh, as Todd said on a podcast the other day, like it's something very tangible that you can sink your teeth into, but uh, it goes with all of these spiritual ideas of there is only one monism or... or as I was recently informed, a lot of my ideas and Gaianism as a whole are very Taoistic as well. Yeah. Um, and you've already admitted several times that you also have animistic uh, beliefs in a lot of this. Yes. And I mean, uh, these are only words, man, that we're throwing around. I have no idea what animism is. <laughs> like, I'm not from an animist, animistic culture. I'm not a neo-pagan even. 
Um, but if I understand animism as uh, giving uh, personhood to everything, sure. I mean, somebody asked me on a podcast whether I think the sun is a living being, and I'm like, well, if it is influencing its surroundings, it is alive. I think everything that influences its surroundings is alive, and that extends even to ideas, even to words, even to concepts and myths and legends. A Bigfoot does not need to be a flesh and blood creature to be an actual creature or a living being. It can be an idea that spreads like a virus through society and culture and history. So until the last person forgets what Bigfoot is, it's still alive to some degree. It is still part of the culture, part of the zeitgeist of really at this point, the world. I would say even when the last person dies, who knows what a Bigfoot is, Bigfoot still keeps living on because of the effect it had on the society, uh, bringing it to that point. The effect is already done, mm. you know, because if there was no Bigfoot, uh, the whole population, the society would be totally different without the Bigfoot than with Bigfoot. It's like saying... Um, because dinosaurs are not alive today, or uh, I, uh, dinosaurs are a dumb example. It's like saying if uh, synapsids <laughs> are not alive today, technically the prehistoric synapsids that were the ancestors of modern day mammals, that they are irrelevant. And yet if they did not exist, we would not exist in the form that we exist now. Okay, so I'm going to go on a slight tangent about mm -hmm. synapsids. There was a, a series of news articles that went out a few weeks back, and it really pissed me off because the title was Human Ancestors Were Alive During the Age of Dinosaurs. Well, even today is the day, age of dinosaurs. We have birds. <laughs> true, true. But let me let me rephrase this. They were proposing that human ancestors were alive during the Paleozoic. Okay. And what they were referring to were synapsids. Well, I mean, I can argue and extend that that uh, human ancestors were alive two and a half billion years ago, because our ancestors are the sen ancestors, which were the uh, bacteria that led to the creation of all life on Earth. True, true. But if you're that reductive, mm -hmm. we could go back and say that that one bacteria, there's one bacteria somewhere that is the ancestor of everything that we have. Yes. That's what was used to be called in biological science as the sen ancestor, mm, the ancestor gotcha. of all life on Earth. Because there were a lot of different species of bacteria possibly at that time, but only the sen ancestor. Uh, survived and diversified long enough to, you know, create all life on Earth now. Mm. Well, my frustration is more with the sensationalist headline than the oh, yeah. actual <laughs> science behind it. I mean, that that goes into my old podcast, Darwin's Deviations. Like, when I started podcasting, I wanted to talk about weird biology. I was never uh, even thinking about talking about the 14 and paranormal. Um, I used to work as a biology teacher. I would do a lot of fun projects with my students. Like, say, I held, apart from the normal curriculum, I held 
like uh, extracurricular classes in biology. So I'd have a group of students that are interested more in, in some cool biological topics. And I'd say, okay, let's talk about immortality. Um, and we did a whole debate of whether immortality is good or, good or bad and how it can influence biological beings and species and evolution and so on and so on. So I was doing all of these cool things uh, when I stopped working as a teacher. I, I was kind of bored. <laughs> I tried doing a blog. Uh, nothing ever happens of that because who reads blogs nowadays? So I started listening to podcasts and I just did not like any biological podcast because everything is, you know, cutesy and, uh, oh, we should save the planet and the, save these creatures and po political motivation, but also kind of going by the same uh, narrative that I have constantly been exposed to since childhood. Like I can remember as a child in kindergarten, everybody uh, sharing what's their favorite animal and everybody saying ponies and kitties and puppies and uh, all of these popular things. And I was always the child who was like, why is nobody talking about the echidna or tapeworms? You know, <laughs> these things that nobody wants to acknowledge. It's like we're trying to sweep under the rug all of these wonderful creatures that are filling out the nooks and crannies of uh, ecological niches, like even a worm that lives in the eyeball of a child to me is a creature that has adapted to fill a nook and cranny that needs to be filled in the, you know, natural world. Full disclosure, I, I actually did a report on the echidna in school. Oh, I got in trouble in school because we were <laughs> learning about mammals and my teacher said like, uh, all mammals give live birth. And I'm like, what about monotremes? You know, the echidna and platypus. And this was second grade elementary. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That makes me think of, um, I was in kindergarten of all times. I, we, we were doing a coloring sheet and the teacher gave us a coloring sheet for tigers. Mm-hmm. And I had just come back from the Cincinnati Zoo where we saw Siberian tigers that are black and white. So I colored it with a white crayon and I got it wrong. Wow. So like, think about this, that like a coloring sheet in kindergarten was being actually graded, but because I was coloring it as something other than a Bengal tiger, it was considered incorrect. Yes, and when when I say like uh, politicize, politicization or whatever of you know yeah, animals and what I didn't like, I, I don't think that it's bad to promote uh, you know saving endangered species and stuff like that. But even in that sphere, you have a lot of these biases, and you have a lot of boards of directors and whatnot. Uh, basically, creating cute poster children for the cause, but. Uh, right that kind of reduces the public's perception of the diversity of life on earth. And there are a lot of aspects of these cute endangered animals that people don't want to talk about, like say otters. Uh, do you know the dark side of otters? Oh, they're horribly violent. <laughs> yes. Oh man. They're, they're atrocious. And uh, when that study was done where they found uh, a lot of dead specimens of baby seals that were sexually assaulted and did necropsies on their bodies. Like that, that was a very controversial study because there was this notion 
uh, it may lead to kind of uh, outrage in the public uh, against these creatures which are endangered. Mm. We have an interesting campaign going on here in West Virginia for something called the Hellbender. And it's it's the giant salamander. Yeah. 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 Uh, Commonly known as the snot otter, which is how I thought of this. But it's not an attractive animal. Mm -hmm. And it's not cuddly by any. In fact, it like secretes like mucus. uh, Hence the name snot otter. But which is a better name than hellbender, especially in a conservative state like West Virginia. Well, yeah, you know, Hellbender doesn't even describe what the animal is. It's just this weird, like, uh, attribution that's stuck. But it's becoming an issue because our our streams are being diverted or they're drying up. Or even with ecotourism, which is a weird thing coming up, um, people are going into the streams and rivers and they're moving rocks. And they're making uh, cairns and stacking rocks. But these animals live under the rocks to help protect them from the fast moving water. We're removing their, their small, small ecosystem that Mm -hmm. they do have. And isn't that, I mean, a beautiful adaptation. We think that we are the only creatures that can manipulate our surroundings and take advantage of it, but all creatures do. Um, That giant salamander takes advantage of those rocks to kind of enhance its own inability to biologically adapt to its surroundings so it can etologically adapt in behavior. Well, it's like your example with the hermit crab. Yeah. In fact, I just read an article recently about the hellbender. They were concerned because the birth rates were, well, not necessarily birth rates. The mortality rate was low. And it's because they found out that adult male hellbenders are going into the nests and eating eggs because the ecological resources in the immediate area are dwindling. Mm -hmm. So it is a self-preservation and self-regulating thing that they are doing. They are reducing the amount of hellbender offspring that are being born to preserve their own mortality. Yes, and that's something we also saw with these studies of otters, especially if bred in captivity or near human settlements, if they live near human settlements and it's very noisy and people pollute the place and, as as you said, move things around and whatnot. There have been a lot of cases where the parents would eat their babies Mm -hmm. because the uh, ecological factors are not... Uh, optimal enough for to ensure the survival of those offspring. So it's like you you eat the offspring now and then try again next year. And that seems to be fairly common in the mammal kingdom. I'm not I'm not great with biology, but like mammals in general, mm-hmm. cannibalism, especially of offspring, is fairly common in times of stress or lack of food. Oh, man. Uh, I know a lot of weird uh, forms of cannibalism, like, uh, you know, of adelphophagy, uh, let's say, uh, where fetuses in in the egg sac of certain types of shark um, eat each other (laughs) before they're born. Whoa. Yeah. Didn't know that. 
And there's also matrifagy, which is uh, when the children consume their own mother. Um, some forms of shrimp uh, have this, the eggs are kept inside the body of the mother and then they hatch and then the babies eat the mother from the inside out. Wow. Yeah. That's disturbing. And you see, I, I, I see that. So the point of my old podcast, Darwin's Deviations, was like, Let's talk about these animals the way nobody ever wants to talk about them. Make them uh, mythology and uh, in an archetypal sense. So I, I would talk, let's say, about matrifagy. Let's. I don't know if I ever covered it, but let's say if I did a matrifagy and that shrimp, I would mm -hmm. talk about its correlations with the whole myth of you know the the consuming mother but also a, ma a maternal sacrifice where the mother uh sacrifices her own body for the well-being of her children which can go into you know the ecological disaster we are putting upon the earth and whether uh, it is intentional or in and natural or not because i do think that our behavior is a result of natural selection and everything is perfect as we like to think in in this spiritualism ramdas like to say everything is perfect and i do think everything is perfect uh, our behavior is what needs to be so if we're doing fucked up things there is maybe an ec ecological reason for that maybe we are uh, consuming our mother so we may be nurtured into these hyper intellectual creators who can create new dimensions of existence for nature to express itself and it's all self-regulating yeah if it were ultimately detrimental to our species we're gonna find out like it's going to have an effect on us you, you see so when i talk about the gaia hypothesis People assume that I want to say it's the end-all, be-all uh, theory of everything, and then when I go into the paranormal, oh, the, uh, every p paranormal happening is a message from an Earth consciousness communicating to us and stuff like that. But no, I like <laughs> to talk about the Gaia hypothesis because it's a model of thinking about the world around you that the Western world is not accustomed to. Um, we don't nurture animistic thought uh, or mm -hmm. even monistic thought in uh, the Western world. Everything is uh, dualism. Everything is black and white. Everything is you need to pick one side and be against the other side. Yeah. But with Guyanism, we are all components of a whole, just as the components which uh, construct us construct the whole of us so it, it's a never-ending ladder of systems within systems within systems every ladder of the hierarchy living its own existence unaware of the hierarchies above and below it uh, as we talked many times like uh, you can observe an amoeba through a microscope using technology but is the amoeba ever aware of you? Like if you if you try to put your finger in that uh, drop of water that you're observing, will it even see your finger and recognize that it's a digit of a giant, you know, multicellular being? Or will it have a paranormal experience of its own? Right, right. And in that instance, it's uh, I think we've compared it to UFO interactions where let's say we want to physically touch that amoeba. We probably couldn't like directly touch that, that amoeba because of 
displacement of water or whatever medium it is floating in, mm-hmm. but we can make tools that would allow us to do that. So we may not be able to physically touch it with our fingers, but we can interact with it directly in some form. And uh, like from that analogy, uh, wouldn't it be then possible that we are also the amoeba to something else and that we are not able to perceive or comprehend exactly things that are much above us? Even if we are aware, let's say, that an ecosystem can be an organism for itself, we are still not able to comprehend the mechanisms by which it exists as its own uh, consciousness. So let me throw this idea out to you. Mm-hmm. I've had this idea, and it extends from, I guess it's extrapolating from the Gaia hypothesis, which basically encapsulates our planet. Our planet is a living organism made up of a sum of its parts, which would be us and everything else that's living here, mm-hmm. and stuff that's not living here. And then we have our solar system, which to me, to some degree, seems like a macrocosm version of cells or atoms. Yeah. We have a power source at the center and we have other objects orbiting that source of power. And then we have other solar systems and we have galaxies and it extends further and further and we have space, but we don't, do we really know what space is? Like, is there something beyond space in a macrocosm that we can't perceive or comprehend much in the same way that that amoeba can't comprehend us. I mean, that's the same as asking, is there anything that is smaller than a subatomic particles that we cannot uh, observe right now? We don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's a thought experiment. We can't observe subatomic particles because they are too tiny uh, compared Mm -hmm. to us but maybe we can't observe the macrocosmos because it is too large for us. Like again, with the amoeba, think of, let's say the amoeba is on your finger. Is the amoeba aware that it is on the finger of a giant multicellular entity of its own? Or is it just treating that finger and that that little uh, bit of water it's swimming in as a whole ecosystem of its own and does not see anything beyond those uh, parameters? Right. And imagine how how far beyond comprehension outer space would be to that amoeba based on its own little microcosm that it lives in. Mm-hmm. And it and makes us seem equally insignificant in the face of everything else in the cosmos. I would not say, okay, that, that's a very nihilistic idea. And I see how people get to that uh, when they first hear of the Gaia hypothesis. So before I got to the Gaia hypothesis, I was doing for Darwin's Deviations an episode on the evolution of multicellularity. I got you to listen to the whole episode. Oh, right, um, right. And I told you, like, I, I was so depressed when making this that episode. And after listening, you probably realize why. It's just like you learn that there is some kind of innate force driving all matter towards complexity, never-ending complexity, never-ending uh, building blocks, creating gi- larger building blocks, and so on, and so on, and so on, to no end. Um, mm-hmm. And there's this force driving matter to create cells, and then a cell is not enough because one cell needs to uh, fend for its life for, for, from predators, find its own food, reproduce, do all of the stuff on its own. Why wouldn't it conglomerate into 
a colony of thousands of cells where they can all work together and then later specialize for certain functions and then later create a whole organism out of multiple cells, you know. And then when you have the organism of multiple cells, let's say us, we still create societies and corporations and religions and all of this stuff because the, life has this never-ending tendency to uh, kind of transfer all of its burdens onto the next uh, step in the ladder of the hierarchy. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. Humanity did the exact same thing. We started to band together for protection. And then yes. we worked in groups to provide ourselves food. And then we specialized. We had individuals who couldn't hunt. So the hunters mm -hmm. would do what they were best at and bring food back. And eventually we got cities and added complexity with, like you said, religion, beliefs, science, arts, all of that all came about because two people decided to work together at some point. Yes. And like, I am a corporate worker now. I do a very, very corporate job, which many, many people would not even realize with the way I am <laughs> and my tricksterish tendencies. And working in a corporation, a large corporation at that, you realize like you are that cell in the body doing just one function. So the other cells can do their functions. So the corporation may sustain itself as a whole. And so the reproduction of the corporation can be handled by the corporation itself and not by you as the single entity constructing mm -hmm. it. So now even this uh, process of reproduction, diversification, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the corporation as a giant conglomerated entity is uh, do, doing that on its own, regardless of its workers that are constructing it. And really without too much direct interference, like the workers know what they're going to come in each day and do. Mm -hmm. And they do their job and therefore the corporation as a whole really just has to maintain homeostasis. Yes. And uh, in that episode, I did talk about how, let's say, when you have this uh, giant entity of thousands and thousands of cells that are specializing for certain functions, still it needs to reduce itself eventually to a single cell, a single cell stage, uh, a sperm cell, let's say, and push it out of the you know whole colony where it is now its own uh, unicellular being, so the whole colony can sustain itself so it can reproduce. I found that very fascinating when researching that. And funnily enough, like when you look at sperm cells of, uh, let's say, plants and fungi and uh, animals, they all resemble the unicellular ancestors of the multicellular form of the being. So let's say our sperm cells have one flagella. That's because the ancestor of all multicellular animals were hoanoflagellates, which also had a single, single flagella, and around it they had this kind of curtain that was used for uh, filter feeding. The flagella would just spin around and then uh, the curtain would scoop up uh, stuff from the water. Eventually, this uh, structure <laughs> that used to be for filter feeding became a, a thing that allows movement of the unicellular form later on in the evolutionary ladder that is now used for reproduction. 
And it's strange how that little adaptation can, once it's used for be once it's used for uh, uh, propulsion, mm -hmm. it, it jumps forward evolution so drastically. Yeah, and it's not even like it didn't really adapt the flagella itself. It's just how it was used. Yes, yes, that's so interesting. I find that very interesting. Like, however complex you want to think you are and however evolutionarily advanced you still rely on a single celled organism and you can't think of a sperm cell from a human as a, its own unicellular being like it's expelled from the system and it just does its own thing its own purpose in life well it's not even a complete it's not even a complete strand of DNA. It's a, yeah. it's a half strand, yeah, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's specialized by this point. Um, yeah. And yet it resembles the thing that led to the evolution of you multiple millions of years ago when you were at the stage of a single-celled organism. But it's serving its very specific purpose. Yeah. And it's adapted to proliferate in for with that purpose yes because that's uh, uh your whole system your whole body is doing all of the other purposes that being needed to to fulfill you know mm -hmm. you're no longer a unicellular organism where one single cell needs to do every function to stay stay alive your system is doing all of these functions and then the function of the unicellular form of you is just to reproduce and nothing else we have come to a very strange place <laughs> for starting out with Bigfoot. Yes, and uh, for starting off with pornography, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, I would like to go here. Um, we in the biology world think of reproduction as the be-all and all of all life. And I think it's a necessity. I don't think the meaning of life is reproduction. I'm a bit biased in that because I am asexual myself. So I always look for uh, theories which uh, conform with my own biases, that sex is not the end-all be-all of life. But really, when you look at biology from the lens of not just scientific materialism, but what I like about the 40, and you look at things from different angles, you look at the cultural aspect, you look at the artistic aspect, aspect as well. I see all of this evolution of uh, life specializing its components to fill out nooks and crannies and voids everywhere, to fill out all of these ecological niches so all of these various forms of expression of life can coexist in harmony and be as diverse as possible so Gaia can have the, the largest deck it can have with so many cards at its disposal to survive any kind of ecological change. I see that as kind of the point of life as expression of life itself. Mm -hmm. we, we express life as the human expression of life itself. But uh, every organism is a different expression of the overarching life that it is a part of. So the best thing we can do is just simply be the best humanoid human being that we can. Everything is perfect. We don't have to strive to be superhuman. We don't have to uh, strive. 
you know what I was thinking about? So I was thinking because you're a, a guy who loves to go out in nature um, okay. and you're a neo-pagan and you have your own connection with nature that you're going to ask me stuff like, oh, do you as a biology and Guyanist guy go out in nature and have your own, you know, connection with the flowers and trees and whatnot? I don't see that as a necessity. We are already doing what we are supposed to do as humans. The trees mm -hmm. have their own home. Just leave them alone. And that ties into religion, basically. Uh, at least it started out as religion. It may be more of a science at this point. But what is the purpose of humanity? What are we supposed to do? Now, you, you said it in broad strokes and broad terms of mm -hmm. we're here serving our purpose the way we're supposed to. But in the broad scheme of the planet, mm -hmm. what is what is humanity supposed to do for the planet? So I go into the artistic side of these whole things and I'm like, uh, if expression of life is the point of life and life is trying to fill out all these voids and nooks and crannies, and it has filled out all of the ecological niches in the you know physical material world. Why wouldn't it create for itself new domains and new dimensions for expression? So we now exist as beings which transcend the physical world around us to create abstract worlds. And by creating abstract worlds, we create uh, new dimensions of existence within which life can express itself. That is not the direction I thought you were going to go with that. I mean, are, are you surprised, dude? <laughs> this is the stuff I, I like <laughs> to talk about. I, let's say you, you have a painting and you, you, you put it out there and it's just an object, you know? Uh, if you don't have beings which have the capabilities and tools within their minds to interpret the symbology of the artistic piece and have it influence them and send them off into the world to do wonderful creative things. Uh, it's just an object out there. So why wouldn't life, if it already filled all the gaps uh, in the material world within the confines of where it can fill out gaps, you know, the biosphere, I, obviously it can't go out in space in the vacuum of space where nothing can exist biologically. But if we have filled we as life, not we as humans, we as extensions of Gaia have filled out all the nooks and crannies of the material reality around us. We transcend that and create more and more realities of expression, more intricate, colorful ways of living beings to communicate with each other, uh, creating uh, more and more of these threads that connect all of us. So here's where I thought you were going with this based on previous conversations we had. I thought you were going to go the route that at some point Gaia has to reproduce. Mm. And that could be our purpose is to go out into the cosmos and inhabit other planets and uh, terraform them, for lack of a better word, yes, to create more expressions of Gaia. I know I, I'm now known for that theory. <laughs> that was, <laughs> I theorized that on Barbara Fisher's show like over a year ago when, before I even started podcasting about these topics and I've re refined my views on these things. Like th that's a very 
I don't want to say pessimistic view, but very materialistic, like, oh, Gaia wants to reproduce because all life wants to reproduce. So it's going to use us uh, just the George Carlin way of, oh, the Mother Earth <laughs> wanted us to create plastic. Now it has plastic, so it tells us to fuck off. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe it's nurturing us to be hyper intellectual beings so we can look up at the sky and maybe... Uh, it is showing us these projections from the collective unconsciousness of our archetypal disks in the sky. So we may uh, be jealous of some uh, imaginary civilization out there that is better off than us. So we can strive to go up there. And if we go up there, we're going to terraform other planets and bring germs with us and so on and so on. I mean, it's it's a theory, but it, when I talk about it, I feel icky. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. It's a theory that would conform with a lot of people who want answers, who want everything to be materialistic, capitalistic even. It's very capitalistic. Uh, Gaia is investing in us so we can bring oh. it to outer space so it can kill us off. You know, it's like a corporation uh, downsizing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and I see it more as, as like you were saying reproduction is not a necessity. Well, it's not, I'm sorry, not a necessity. It's not the end all be all, mm -hmm. but it is a necessity for the species. So if the planet is a living organism and can be considered a species, it is necessary to at some point reproduce. I don't think it has to be super materialistic and, and gross about it. It's just, just a natural thing. It could be us. It could be, uh, like you said, it could be bacteria that, we deliver mm -hmm. to space accidentally. Yes, but I, I want to say, like, going back to this uh, analogy of the otters eating their children, that's only in uh, conditions of ecological stress. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of ecological stress <laughs> happening to Gaia now. <laughs> but, like, if there are the conditions where it can coexist with us, it already has us as uh, its best investment you know because we have opened up creative realms and we can express life in many different forms that an earthworm can't mm -hmm. you know or maybe it can maybe earthworms have uh, myths and stories and legends of their own but we'll never be able to find out but but an earthworm cannot create technology that can bring it to another planet we can so if we are already this giant investment why not uh, utilize us still, even if we terraform other planets, uh, why not utilize us to keep existing as the creators and imaginators uh, of Gaia? Because we, we, however we are, are extensions of life itself. We are the extension that is able to bypass the physical reality and create imaginal and uh, creative and abstract realities that can influence uh, whole cultures and societies. That is so strangely spiritual coming from you that <laughs> it's, uh, I'm honestly taken aback. I'm not sure how to react to it. Uh, well, that's the thing. So I went into this whole stuff uh, a year ago, very materialistic and very oriented towards the psychosocial stuff. But like, oh, is Gaia showing us projections of monsters and aliens so it can fuck with our minds, 
be a trickster to us, blah, blah, blah. And the more I interacted with you guys in this community, and especially Todd Purse, like Todd Purse is the puzzle piece that was missing <laughs> for quite a while for me. Just happiness and e- expression and creativity. And yeah, there is something there. However, I want to be a miserable prick. There is still something there. It, it's a beautiful expression of life. Why would life want to lose that that method of expressing itself? I'll be honest. I'm I'm stumped as to where to go from here. <laughs> <laughs> and I think your listeners are stumped as well. Like uh, you never had this type of guest on the show <laughs> or this kind of conversation. No, and that's what I ultimately want to do. I don't necessarily want to provide answers for anybody. I just want people to start thinking about these topics and these theories for themselves. And like you, I want them to come to their own conclusions so that they can share that with other people. Again, the amoeba. The amoeba does not need to know who we are, what our technology is like. For it to be an amoeba. It's an amoeba. It's doing its amoeba thing. Just leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> and you as a human, just do your human thing. You are already are perfect. You're already doing what you need to do. You don't need to think about how hierarchies above you function where you can't even comprehend them. Sorry, the whole time you were saying that we are the most perfect human that we can be, the only thing that was popping up in my head is Todd saying, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, man. <laughs> we are the most perfect human that we can be because there is no other choice. There is only the now. There are no parallel dimensions. What is now is the most perfect. It, like, when I think about it, it is very, very peculiar that life has existed for, I don't know, two and a half billion years on this planet and that it has not been wiped out. You know how scary of a place outer space is? Like mm-hmm. we can be we can be burned down by radiation at any moment, by anything in the cosmos, and yet we aren't. Oh, yeah. So everything is perfect as it is. Well, it goes back to me being super nerdy about dinosaurs Like, we understand how bad things got on, like, a surface level after the meteor impact at the Chicxulub impact crater. Like, we have a very basic understanding as a society that, yes, it was bad. But the more you read about it and you find out all these effects that took place, it's mind-boggling that anything survived. But do do you know why anything survived? It's because... Gaia life on Earth had more playing cards in her deck. Yes. You can lose a lot of these cards, but you still have some cards that can then continue living on, diversify, and fill out those nooks and crannies that are left over by the extinct beings. And I I want to believe... I want to believe... Ah, Mulder. <laughs> oh, I, you said it. I hate Mulder. Like, he's an asshole. <laughs> I am clipping this. I am using this for a promo. I am holding this above your head. That's the most annoying thing when I hear it in, in the 14 community, but I'm not talking about 14 topics now. Like I want to believe that art may save life itself. Can you expand on that? 
So if some kind of cataclysm is to happen, just as with the dinosaurs, that's going to wipe out a lot of organisms on Earth, a lot of these playing cards, isn't every form of expression another uh, card in the deck? So even art, even creativity, even these imaginal artistic realms that we are creating are different forms of expression that can be used to adapt to new changes in the environment. My initial gut reaction was to say no, but I started to think about it. For those who would remain, the stories that we're telling now, the art that we create would influence our actions going forward. Yeah. It would inform the future generations how to behave and how to how to rebuild society based on basically our mistakes. I don't know that Game of Thrones would be a good thing to use as a basis for future societies, but Oh, when I, when I say art, I I'm not talking about, you know, specific uh uh, artistic endeavors like a TV show or a movie. I'm, I'm talking g- generically, very broadly. Art can be anything, any any kind of creation. I mean, even engineering of all of our technology is a form of art. Manipulating your surroundings in any meaningful way is an art. Mm. Perceptual art as well. Even us talking now is an art. Uh, linguistics are an art. And I love to talk about language because like when we talk about non-corporeal entities, you know, ghosts and whatever. It does not always have to be something out there. It can be something within us and with us and alongside us. I mean, paranormal is parallel to normal. So why isn't it also parallel to us, not outside of us, not extra normal, you know? So I see language as a very Fortean paranormal mystical thing because can you prove language exists like physically, materially? How can you... Mm. uh, how can you document the existence of language? And even if you document it, you need the person who has the tool sets to interpret the language and find meaning out of it. Right. So it's something that exists within us that's manifested in the outside world and forms society and culture. Language is probably the most perfect example of co-creation. Exactly. And and uh, language also, you know, diversifies, diverges, evolves. Uh, people have colonized different um, regions of the world, and these languages have split off into their own offshoots, just like biological organisms, only it did not take millions of years, you know, because mm-hmm. it is not uh, within the confines of physical law. You know, it's not a biological entity that needs to reproduce by reducing itself to the single cell stage of a sperm and so on and so on, you know, and generations of these uh, uh, mutations accumulating and then creating new adaptations. Language is something that transcends all that. So it can more exponentially evolve, but alongside us as an extension of us who are holding on to the material tool set that is required to fulfill the biological uh, need of, you know, extending the species and allowing evolution to go on. But it's it's kind of like some parallel evolution to our biological evolution. It's, it's like DLC. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> if you look at a game, it's like uh, DLC. You, you have the base. Oh, 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 you had me totally lost with that acronym. Yeah. I was thinking like still science and, and art and technology. And you said DLC. And I'm like, wait, 
I don't know what that acronym stands for. Okay, yes, for downloadable content. Yes, but the DLC cannot exist without the base game. You know, we, we the material human being, Homo sapiens, are the base thing. And all of these extensions mm -hmm. of us are things that enrich us and enrich life itself, but require our material base to exist so it can uh, exist within uh, an artistic realm that transcends the physical, but still is tethered to the physical reality of us. Right. I've also heard the theory that perhaps even time is a construct that's unique to humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I like to be that guy and say, oh, time is a tulpa. It's the most successful tulpa we have created. <laughs> Uh, we are essentially synchronizing all humans on Earth to work within the confines of this artificial system uh, of time so we can all function and transcend, you know, our individual lives to form communities and societies and uh, corporations, which I like to mention. So everything mm -hmm. can uh, work like clockwork. But I do think it's a human construct. And I don't know, it, time is change time when we talk in the 14 about time we always talk about how the other realm uh the, the realm of the fae or the aliens or whatnot is always timeless and you know todd purse likes to talk about these instances where people are abducted by aliens who say oh we like to grow ideas in your realm because ideas are grown in time and we cannot grow ideas in a timeless space hmm so time is change actually T time is just how we like to refer to change. Progression. Even on an intangible level, mm -hmm. how we refer to change. It's simply like, it's not today and it's not right now. It was yesterday. Well, what is yesterday? It's just a time that came before right now. Do you believe uh, that a time machine could be a real thing and that somebody could uh, travel back to the past? Probably not in the way that we do in uh, in science fiction. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we could actually go backwards in time. I think it might be possible to move fast enough or at a distance great enough that time would seem to stand still for those who are traveling. But I don't think that we could necessarily go back in time. I would agree. And I think of everything as kind of everything exists in the present and the past is the present. Uh, we have remnants of the past, but they have been irreparably damaged by the progression of, of time, let's say, uh, of change. You know, the past mm. is an irreversible state of the now. So mm -hmm. what we have now cannot be reversed. The change cannot be reversed. Ch change happens. You cannot go back to it. And it is all an element of the present. I like to think of the past as a mythology of the past. Oftentimes when we talk about history, we do not perceive it very accurately and correctly. And we create this mythology and all of these, you know, historical figures that we uh, keep alive by talking about them and teaching our kids in schools. It's just a folklore that we are teaching ourselves how to live in the now and how to propel ourselves into the future. And I see it 
very similar to that. I agree with the folklore that we don't necessarily know what happened after a certain point. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the past becomes basically mythology after it leaves memory. So if there's no one who was around to remember as it happened, it becomes folklore, basically. Okay, and do you believe in the uh, accuracy of a person's memory? <laughs> no, but as long as someone is still alive and that can remember the event, to them, it still is now. Okay, I, I would like to say here, so... It's not necessarily the person is remembering event, the event, but the person experienced the event. The person mm. is a changed result of something that happened in the past. Right. Yeah. But still, that's accumulated throughout the years. We now are a result of everything that happened in the past, even though we did not directly experience it. We did indirectly. Which leads us back to the original topic we were talking about with the Fortiana. It's all about how it affected the individual who eventually expanded to affect all of us with their retelling of it. Oh, yeah. So, uh, again, with, with the linguistics, um, I had two doctors in linguistics on my show. Dr. Karen Stolzno, who you may know from Monster Talk. And Dr. Katrina Daly Thompson, who wrote a book about the Popobawa, which is something I like to bring up a lot because, okay, it is in Tanzania, in Africa, a sleep paralysis entity that supposedly attacks men, assaults them in their sleep. Mm -hmm. But it is much more complicated and much more tied to the Swahili language and how the culture there uses the supernatural in discourse. And I see the whole myth of the Popobawa and how it is used in that culture as kind of a small-scale version of everything in the Fortiana. We, when we read these books on 14 topics and these cases, we are not reading about what actually happened. We are reading about what somebody says that happened to them. We are dabbling in linguistics, what somebody says happened is not necessarily what happened because between the reality and their perception of the event and then their recalling of the event to an investigator and then the investigator's writing of the event and so on and so on, reinterpretations and adaptations, it is molded into a whole mythology that does not accurately reflect what actually happened. Again, my analogy with the geese, you know, somebody can see geese in the sky uh, nobody will know if it was geese or not because they flew off and, you know, you'll never find them again to prove, oh, this person saw a flock of geese. But then there is this UFO experience that they had intrinsically. So that can form a whole mythology that, that just sprouted out of a stupid flock of geese. I find that very, very fascinating. And when we talk about the Fortiana, I find it kind of a shame that people in this community do not uh, see the value in that. They only th care about whether something is real or not and whether something is real materially out there ex externally that they can go and shoot down. They don't want things to be intrinsic 
from within. They don't want things to be complicated. They don't want to acknowledge just all the people and middlemen between the happening and then consuming the story that they're attracted to. But I find all that messiness and all that muddiness very, very interesting and very valuable. It is making the Fortiana into a meme in the most original, literal sense from when that term was created. Yeah. It's a concept, but like, think of, for everyone that's listening, the best way to describe this is we have a meme. It has text on it and it conveys an expression, an emotion, a quip, something like that. But eventually, you don't even need the text to convey that. Yeah. You can just show the image or you could just show a drawing of that image or even just a single portion of that image, not even the entire thing. And you're still conveying the full message around it. I mean, if you, if you show a little child now the silhouette of Bigfoot and all of this merch that's being sold because Bigfoot is now an industry. It's mm-hmm. a meme that's used to propel economy. But if you show a child this silhouette of Bigfoot, you know, from the Patterson-Gimlin footage, they're going to know it's a Bigfoot. But do you think that child knows any, any of the cases of Bigfoot or who Patterson and Gimlin were? They don't need to know any of this to recognize the symbol that they're seeing the meme. And in turn, we have to turn around and go from the meme of Bigfoot, which, granted, we are older and, and we understand the stories and everything behind it, but we also still have to backtrack to, okay, what does this mean? What is the purpose of someone seeing a Bigfoot, whether it's real, intangible, uh, it doesn't really matter. What is the purpose behind seeing this? Do you think there is one purpose or that there are as many purposes as there are witnesses? There's as many reasons as there are people who see him. Okay. I think things like that are very personal to the individual. There is a reason that person saw something at that time in that location. We can't answer that. Only they can answer that. And that's going to take a lot of introspection. So something, again, going back to the Popobawa, why it fascinates me. It fulfills many sociological roles and not all of them have necessarily been a part of the lore from the start. You know, it probably started out as a sleep paralysis entity because that exists in all cultures. Uh, I covered, let's say, the the case that inspired Freddy Krueger of the refugees from Laos, I think, who were dying in the United States in their sleep because they were afraid that they're being attacked by, by supernatural forces. There is a cultural belief in their in their cultures in Laos, that uh, there are these entities similar to sleep paralysis entities that can attack them in their sleep and that they need the help of a shaman or their religion. And if they can't practice their religion in the United States, trying to escape from a revolution in their country, uh, then they get agitated. And that, that's a part of their reality. It's their cultural reality. It's so real to them that these people got heart attacks in their sleep as a result of this. 
And that, that's just one manifestation of the sleep paralysis sense. You know, you have the old hag, boo hag, the nochna amora in my culture, the incubi and succubi and so on. So the popobawa is one, one archetypal image of the base archetype of this sleep paralysis entity. But then the way it is used in, in Tanzania, let's say the LGBT culture there can use it to safely express themselves because it is illegal to be gay there. So a gay man can, through jokes, joke about being visited by the Popobawa and test the waters because it is more socially acceptable to uh, use euphemisms, to uh, beat around the bush, you know. You, you won't openly talk about being gay, but you will joke around about being visited by a male raping demon. Right. But then there are people who use the Popobawa to kind of uh, say that they have authority in something. A lot of priests have been documented in this book who have used uh, stories of exorcising the Popobawa out of people to establish their own authority as religious figures. Another person established their own authority as an expert in culture by knowing a lot about the Popobawa. A woman who had a sexual encounter with a ghost talked about having it with the Popobawa because it was more socially acceptable because it's a Muslim country. And then if a woman had an encounter with a ghost and is married in a Muslim country, very conservative, that's problematic. So it's more socially acceptable to say, oh, I was attacked by a demon. So this this same meme, the same figure... uh, fills out many social roles to many different people depending on the circumstances. So I think Bigfoot is something that resonates with a lot of people for a lot of different reasons and fills out a societal cultural role in many different ways. It's not just one thing. It's just Mm -hmm. a meme that works for many different reasons for many different people. It is so broad it has such a broad appeal and broad resonance with society that people can use it to express many different things. Which is why that symbol is, and the idea, the concept in general works so well with our episode on Appalachian cryptid tarot. Mm-hmm. These are memes and archetypes. Yeah, as you saw, me and you had totally different uh, interpretations of each of the cryptids, and I find that fascinating. Like, people who do these podcasts want it to be, you know, straightforward, don't don't want to be messy, don't, don't want to be proven wrong, but there is no wrong. There is no clean and messy. There's no right and wrong. There's no good and bad. There is no duality. There just is. Uh, my interpretation and your interpretation. And we are both different expressions of the same thing. We are both humans, but expressing our humanity in different ways. And isn't that beautiful? Oh, absolutely. It's diversity of what it means to be a human. I feel like we've come full circle on this episode. (laughs) We made poop jokes. We talked about sperm and... uh, you know, sleep paralysis, demons, and UFOs. Yeah, we've we've kind of gone full circle on this. Oh, man. Uh, I had a conversation with my father today, so I, I sent him 
from Fred Anderson's new book, uh, Northern Lights, High Strangeness in Sweden, how I mentioned three times in the book. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, oh, how did you uh, end up in a book about Swedish UFOs? And I I was telling him like my, my theory about archetypes, how that resonated with Fred. And my father does not think deeply too much about these topics. So he's like, oh, does that mean that UFOs are not real? I'm like, define what a UFO is, define what reality is. And then we went into a whole discussion about him kind of talking about my culture and people here, how they're very conservative and don't want to think deeply and blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling him, you're just projecting your own biases onto the people around you and especially your own traumas as a child. We went into those topics and by the end, we went for full circle and I told him this is what UFOs are. We started with UFOs and now we're talking about a whole psychoanalysis of your childhood. Yeah. That, that's what attracts me to the 14 because via the way people talk about the weird topics, we can learn not just a lot about the person, but a, a lot about society as a whole. It's like the Jungian shadow of society expressing itself. We all know how Greek mythology is a reflection of the Jungian shadow. You know, everything that we don't want to acknowledge, we attributed to the, the gods and these monsters and Medusa and the Gorgons and whatever. But now we do that with, uh, with UFOs and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster. They're all expressions of things we don't want to acknowledge about ourselves. Right. And like the Popa Bawa, it gives us a way and a reason and an impetus to talk about it. And a very safe way, because you can always be like like with the Popa Bawa, oh, I'm just kidding, That that's just an imaginary thing. Yeah, and these archetypes, for again, using Bigfoot as an example, in the tarot, it is, to me, in that episode, it expressed this feeling of oppression by society. It's this desire to be left alone and return to the woods. Yes. But to you, it's a whole different thing. But it's the same meme. It's the same entity that is expressing itself in different archetypes, which again leads to us as humans expressing ourselves in different ways. And in our episode we did, we did not do the straightforward, what does Bigfoot mean to me? What does it mean to you? But we put a middleman there. We Mm -hmm. used one of 21 cards in the major arcana to say, this is my Bigfoot, you know? And with the 14, we constantly and constantly put so many middlemen between us and whatever the source of the phenomenon is. So we can more and more indirectly talk about these things without ever acknowledging what is within and what is without. You know, the the point A and point B are never brought up in discussion. It's always the whole spectrum between them. And it's also creating a sense of cohesion between us all, too. We have different interpretations, but we still latch on to these same archetypes to some degree which affect us all in different ways. But it reinforces the idea that we're all human and we're all very much alike. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
And I, I'd like to extend that to not just us, but all life on Earth. We are all very, very alike. Yeah. I, I like to think when we're talking about Jungian unconsciousness, you know, the ether that is connecting all of our minds together and within which these archetypes reside, I like to think that all life on Earth has the uh, access to this uh, Akashic record or collective unconsciousness, that we are not just reacting to archetypes of us, but of all life around us. We are the sum experience of everything that came before us. Yeah. So is this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say that is a the perfect spot to end this. That is a, a deep thought for everyone to ponder and keep them up at night. Oh, man. I just hope uh, anybody still tuned in that, that you appreciated this and that I did not wreck your mind too much. <laughs> I'll be honest, you you broke me a couple times. Uh, I did not expect to, like, I knew you were smart and you had some really interesting experiences and thoughts behind biology and ecology and all this, but I've never heard you actually express them to any degree on other shows. So when you brought this all out to me now, it, it broke my brain a little bit. But that's okay. I'm going to ponder this over in the next few days. And yes. it's going to give me something to think about. And I'm going to grow. You're going to grow as a result of this. And ideally, everybody that listens to this episode will also grow. And I'd like to add that if you and I, like down the line in five years, listen to this episode and we don't cringe, then there's something wrong with us. Because we <laughs> we always have to grow and progress like, I should not have these ideas down the line in five years. I should expand on them. Or I should have completely different ideas. As Jacques Vallée, every decade Jacques Vallée changes his theories on what UFOs are. And it's like the, the Wheel of Time tarot card. It's, it's, it's this cycle of seasons that are necessary for something to be whole. Well, we shouldn't be stagnant. We shouldn't have a set opinion in the face of new information. Yes. That's that's just folly. If you learn something new and you you refuse to accept it, that is not a good way to grow and move forward. Exactly. You you can't. You can't move forward if you just are stuck in the past, which as we determined doesn't exist. Yes, and as we determined if you don't change and adapt, then the asteroid will kill everything on Earth because there are <laughs> not enough forms of expression to life for life to continue existing. So the more you change, the more you uh, are challenged and exposed to opinions that crush your uh, view on reality the more you are providing the universe forms of thought so it can continue existing. So really, we are saving the planet. Yes. <laughs> by, <th> <laughs> by changing, by thinking, and by not uh, sticking to, to a certain pet theory, S says the Gaia guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the Bigfoot guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Is there anything you want to plug? I know you're done with uh, Tracing Owls for now. Well, I mean, it's for now. Like, I, I can be inspired by this conversation and tomorrow record something and just put it up. So my 
show Tracing Owls. You can find it wherever you're listening to this. And I do urge you, if you're interested in anything that I said, just go and listen to the backlog because I see podcasting as not something that that's like news, you know, that's relevant for a day and then the next day you move on with your life. I created something that's uh, an expression and a conversation with somebody that's recorded a uh, record in time and space of an event. So if you go back and listen to that, even 10 years down the line, it is still very relevant. It's a document of a spiritual exchange between two people. And it's really interesting too, granted, there are a lot of episodes for what you did in what, one year's time? Yeah. <laughs> you can listen to Vuk grow with every episode as his mind is expanded from these different ideas. And you can see all the theories that we just talked about on this episode, where they came from and how they were developed. You know what, dude, like it's, it's like the fool's journey of the major arcana, you know, the fool's journey is structured. It starts with the fool. It ends with the world and all of these archetypes in between them are the various different teachers uh, and mentors that the fool stumbles upon. So my whole journey is every guest I'm having is my mentor and I'm the fool. I'm growing until I reach the world. I don't know, is this episode the world because I'm not doing my podcast anymore? <laughs> but I doubt it. I think you're still like stuck on the hanged man. <laughs> but but yeah, like it's the fool's journey. You're 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 exposing yourself to different different people who fulfill different roles and can learn teach you different things. And by the end, you become whole, you become the world, you become Gaia, the one. So there is only one and always th there is one. <laughs> <laughs>